You're listening to SA Talk, San Antonio's favorite podcast for local events, topics, and discussions involving the Alamo City. I'm your host and favorite retirement advisor, Zachary Espericueta. Today is Friday, June 4th, and we are less than two weeks away from our first fiesta in over two years. Can you believe it? As a reminder, Fiesta this year begins on Thursday, June 17th and concludes on Sunday, June 27th. This week, I have Lizzie Perez, Certified Professional Coach, South by Southwest EDU Advisory Board Member, Educational Leader, and Educational Consultant joining me on the podcast. We have a great conversation this week that touches on psychological safety in the workplace, praxis as it pertains to teachers. You'll learn a little bit about that, as well as being courageous and the elements that go along with that. As the conversation goes on, we even have a little discussion about cancel culture in relation to being more courageous and how mistakes can occur, and that's okay. Anyway, we'll be getting to that conversation with Lizzie shortly. Before that, I wanted to give a special shout out to a new supporter of the podcast, Connie P. Thank you, Connie. I really appreciate your listenership and support for the show. Listeners, if you didn't know already, you too can support the podcast on a monthly basis. Keep in mind, this podcast is not a coffee shop or a retail store, nor does the podcast sell any kind of subscription service. So the only way the show can remain sustainable is through sponsorship and listener support. You can support the show monthly with as little as 99 cents up to $9.99. So visit the link in bio if you want to find out more. Um, You can find out how to set up that monthly contribution to the podcast. I would really, really appreciate it. We're going to take a quick break. When I come back, I'll have my discussion with Lizzie Perez. Stay tuned. Hey guys, it's Zach. As some of you may know, I help people plan for retirement. And as your advisor, I can not only show you how money truly works, but put you in control of your money today and in retirement. If you're looking to schedule a financial review, please give me a call at 210-760-0409. Welcome back to Essay Talk. Like I mentioned earlier, I'm going to be sitting down this week with Lizzie Bettes to discuss the important work she does here in San Antonio and why it's important now more than ever, especially in educational spaces. Lizzie is the founder and CEO of Lizzie Perez LLC. She hosts workshops, coaching sessions, and even one-on-one trainings with school staff and nonprofit organization employees to help evoke awareness and stimulate worthwhile change in oneself and others around them. Lizzie received her bachelor's degree from Texas State in San Marcos, her master's from Texas A&M Commerce, and is currently working on her PhD at Our Lady of the Lake here in town. She holds many certifications, including a diversity equity and inclusion in the workplace certificate from USF in Florida, as well as a trauma-enforced care practitioner certification. She has experience working for school districts and leadership consulting firms, but now, of course, she works for herself. So with that said, I don't want to keep y'all waiting any longer. Here's my conversation with Lizzie Perez. Lizzie Perez, welcome into SA Talk. I appreciate you joining me on the show today. I know you've been listening to the show for a while, so I also appreciate that. How's it going? Pretty good. So tell us and tell me a little bit about what you do in the community. I'm a leadership consultant and coach. I actually was furloughed in 2020 as a consultant uh, back then, and I was sort of forced to follow my own dreams and decided to launch my own consulting and coaching business. So I've been at it for almost a year. And what I do is I work with school districts, charters, nonprofits, and helping leaders become more courageous in their leadership. And so a lot of that can involve anything from facilitating customizable workshops to training to one-on-one coaching to intact 
team coaching. And a lot of that comes from my experience as a certified professional coach, as well as other certifications that kind of lend itself to the work I do. I'm also a certified Dare to Lead facilitator based on the research of Brene Brown. I'm a trauma-informed care practitioner. I recently uh, received the diversity, equity, inclusion workplace certificate from University of Southern Florida. Well, I'm also trying to maintain a PhD at Our Lady of the Lake in leadership studies. So there's a lot of balancing going on and I get to take theory, Zach, and put it into practice and help schools do the same thing, uh, which is often the rub. It's, it's, I can read a book, leaders say, I can, I can read this, but how do I get to where I can practice that? And that's exactly what I do is I sort of hold their hand through this process and put them in scenarios and role plays and things of that nature to help them practice what it's like to go into hard conversations, for example. And it's just teachers that you're working with? Primarily teachers, but I, I work with school principals, uh, directors, assistant uh, superintendents, superintendents, and nonprofit leaders as well. Now, something you had talked about previously and, and some information you had provided to me was the term praxis. Yes. And I think you were kind of alluding to that when you were talking about using theory and turning that theory into practice. Why is that important? You know, I never really took much to that term until, and I remember even at one point, Zach, when I left the state of Texas to go to Indiana, I had to take a test as sort of a reciprocal teaching permit. And I remember the name of the text was Praxis. And I kind of Googled it and said, oh, okay, I, I know what that means. That makes sense. But I never thought that I would be right in the thick of engaging in praxis. Now, when I look at praxis, it can be summed up as informed action. It's the process of taking action in practice while acting with the theoretical framework. Again, working with school leaders, even with institutes of higher education, a lot of the times we get caught in the world of academia, anything that we were taught in school uh, to get our bachelor's, master's, PhD, and then we go into the world and we sort of practice what we've been taught. But there seems to be some gray area and there's not any concerted effort on continuing that professional development or there's nobody there to coach you through this process. Although you'll see that there's a lot that has shifted in school districts where they are implementing the role of coaches in various capacities, whether that's instructional coaches for teachers uh, whether that's one-on-one -on -one coaches for school leaders, for example, because what we're finding out, Zach, as I'm sure you find out, and even in the work that you do, a lot of times, you know, we might be apprehensive stepping into some conflict, for example. We might know some terminology about conflict resolution and conflict management, but who's actually in that room during my time that I'm having this conflict to coach me through this and to provide a safety net while I'm doing this, uh, not a lot of schools engage in that sort of work. And that's where I come in, as well as others in the community who do this kind of work. It's really leading people to their praxis and understanding how am I informing my action and what do I do if I believe in this theoretical framework? And we can take, for example, Amy Edmondson's work on the fearless organization. If I really believe this book, I just read it, I'm engaged in the work, uh, who's out there to help me practice that work? And that's really what I've learned has been my sort of description of what I do 
in our San Antonio community and beyond. What are some examples of that in the classroom? In the classroom, for example, if, if you're looking at specific teachers who are engaged with students, now right now there, there's been every kind of format from virtual capacity to hybrid to face-to-face, all three. Uh, teachers have been just spent this whole year and a half trying to figure out and navigate the ways of engaging with the students. So even more reason to understand more about one another individually. So teachers are tasked with the role of not just knowing their content, but knowing their students. So maybe they're uh, on a virtual Zoom screen and they're trying to engage with students, yet 28 out of 30 students have their camera off because they have realized that they can get by and there's nobody there to force them, so to speak. And they can get by because they're in the confines of their home, for example, or you have some students who are just introverted, who maybe are dealing with really tough things in their life. And I'll take gender dysphoria for one. If a kid is being misgendered um, already as it is, and they have to turn their camera on and show that they're going by their pronouns, he and him, but they keep being called by their uh, birth given name, then that could be a very hesitant place for a teacher to engage in. So we go over scenarios like that to give them the skill set to identify what might be happening on the other line um, and what are some ways in which they can use inclusivity as part of their repertoire and their language on an everyday basis. So when you talk about conflict, when you talk about engaging in hard conversations, when you talk about getting to know students, for example, or getting to know your colleagues, it starts to bring in all sorts of work, Zach. It starts to bring in other sort of theoretical frameworks. And it also just brings this sort of place of knowing how to address students and colleagues with the right pronouns. That's just one aspect, right? Uh, Knowing how to address people of color. You know, BIPOC is a term that is used oftentimes. How do we get teachers and educators and people alike to just ask the question, Zach, how do you identify yourself? And that simple question could be really hard for somebody to even ask. So it's really gearing people up for those conversations and giving them what I call confidence in themselves to be able to have those, what may look like they're not hard conversations, but could eventually become hard. That seems important because, and maybe you, I mean, I would think you would know this better than I do, but I mean, are, are educators nowadays engaging in, in any other kind of workshops or trainings when it comes to inclusivity or especially now with pronouns? Like, is that something that's actively being, uh, I guess you could say taught, but um, just, you know, discussed amongst educators? Yes. For the first time, it feels like in this sort of place we're in, and I'll just call it pandemic place, for the first time, it's like the green light turned on and gave the world permission to host very delicate and taboo professional development workshops. It's as if we were waiting for permission. Um, I'm not quite sure, but a lot of that could be some of the uh, results of a a presidency that taught us uh, people's lives really do matter. Black lives matter. Everybody is in this place of taking it upon themselves to learn to unlearn and to relearn. And because you see such turmoil 
and systemic racism, for example, happening, it really does open up this area of discomfort, but it also opens up the area of comfort too. And I think that's given us permission to say, we're going to talk about it. We're going to place it in the room. We're going to bring all isms in the room and we're going to name them when we see privilege step coming in or ageism or sexual orientation orientation. We're going to name it and we're going to learn together through the process. I can honestly tell you in the, in the eight years I've been consulting, this is the first year and I'll take 2020 summer to now that uh, workshops are happening all across America and beyond on how we can be more inclusive and create a sense of belonging, which therefore means we need some, some really explicit strategies for how to do this work. Well, you know, you brought up having to unlearn uh, certain things. And I think that's what's hard for a lot of people. I think especially as you get older. <laughs> so maybe some older teachers, mm-hmm. um, not all, but I think it's hard. The older you get, you've put in a certain amount of time and energy into learning something and and practicing something. And then all of a sudden, it's different. And you have to you have to teach something differently or discuss something differently or just maybe treat someone differently, right, when it comes to pronouns. So I think that's what's really hard for older educators. In your experience, what are the different conversations you have with maybe an older educator than you do with like a younger educator? Because I think those conversations yeah. are, are really different. Yeah, generational, intergenerational conversations are one of the most interesting dynamics in any sort of coaching situation or facilitated workshop. It makes me think of a couple of things, Zach, and I is a book I remember reading in high school called All I Ever Really Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And it's so true. When you think about everything we learned as young kindergartners was all just these sort of ways of being kind to one another. And, and in that time between five years old and maybe even before that, to where we are now, a lot of things have been placed upon us. There was this uh, sort of system that was built to benefit the people who built the system. And everyone who doesn't look and feel and identify as the people who built the system are trying to climb this ladder, so to speak. And we start to become assimilated into culture. And we start to slowly place more judgment on individuals because that's what's been told you have to do, so to speak. So when I think about the intergenerational work that we do in facilitated workshops, I was just in one last week and there's a lot of discomfort. And that's when you know you're doing the work that matters is I feel something really weird. It doesn't feel like I can talk about this. And that's usually a really good indicator that there's something coming into the room. Patrick Lencioni wrote the book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And he basically said that if you don't have trust at the first layer, then you'll never get to the next piece, which is conflict. And people go, well, why would I want conflict? Well, it's because through productive conflict, breakthroughs happen. And before you can ever move into anybody committing to an organization, you have to have that trust. You have to have that layer of understanding that you can engage in productive conflict, that it's okay to have conflict. Part of that conflict moves you through a place where everyone can learn to love and care and belong. So the the generational pieces of our veteran teachers, for example, our veteran leaders is a real thing. And I think it shouldn't even matter from generation to generation if we all walk in to conversations, to campuses, to school districts, 
to nonprofit organizations with this idea that we are not the knowers of everything. We may have experienced life along the way in a very assimilated culture. However, if we open up our hearts to this idea of I'm going to learn and possibly unlearn what I've been taught, then we're going to find ourselves engaged in in higher level critical thinking, which is what the state wants our students to engage in, is that higher level synthesizing place. We can have those conversations, but if we shut the door and say, this is what I know, this is what I believe, and I will not open that door, then we're setting ourselves up for a place where our organizations will be dysfunctional and won't have a functional team that arises to the part of paying attention to your results and being committed and moving forward. Well, you know, and I was, I was having the conversation this morning with my mother about that's why it's important to be vulnerable in these situations, right? Yeah, I, I will tell you this. I never had a problem going up being vulnerable anywhere I've ever been. Yet now vulnerability is being spoken of as the thing to do and to be and to become. So it excites me that we've been given a passageway or an entrance, especially through the work of uh, Brene Brown, who's emulating what it, what it really means in the research about what vulnerability means. Vulnerability is that first layer, again, of, of Patrick Lencioni's work of the five dysfunctions of a team. He says, you got to have trust. If not, you can't get to production. Conflict. Well, he says, in order to have trust, you have to be vulnerable. And that does not mean telling your life story about everything that's ever happened to you in one seating with, the, with your colleague. That's not what that means. It's simple things like asking for help when you don't understand an area of your job. So if a teacher is moving from fourth grade level content, and then next year becomes a fifth grade teacher, if that teacher goes in very guarded and armored and self-protective and pretends to know everything, they're going to do more harm than opening up themselves to a place of, hey, Zach, you've been doing fifth grade for a while. I'm going to be your uh, sort of robot behind you watching everything you do because I want to learn. I want to be better and I'm going to ask you for help and I'm not afraid to do that. So a lot of times vulnerability looks and sounds like that. Speaking, you know, a little bit about some of the work that you do and some of the, the the trainings, things that you teach, some of that has to do with being courageous as Absolutely. an educator. So talk a little bit about that. I instantly got goosebumps because I thought about all the clients with whom I've been working over the course of this pandemic and all those that I'm not working with and those that we're seeing stories left and right in the media of just heroic efforts on their part, everything from providing lunches and the and the critical time of COVID when, you know, vaccines weren't even in the conversation, right? And I talk about where we are now and to see and be a witness to the work that schools are doing every day, the way those educators are showing up is courageous in and of itself. And then you add stepping into these tough moments when you know you should say something, but everyone in the room isn't saying anything and you share an idea you have or hey, guys, I don't think this is the right thing for us to do when everybody else is staring at you going, oh, my goodness, I can't believe you said that. Courageous can look that simple and it can look as hard as going into conversations with your staff about sexual orientation. So the the spectrum can go all the way across 
and where I've seen courageous conversations happening. Uh, part of the work that I like to do, Zach, is getting back to praxis, is taking that theoretical framework and moving into practice. So we talk about being courageous all the time. We need more courageous leaders is what Brene Brown says. Well, people come to me saying, I wanna practice being courageous. Help me, I can't do this by myself. And to tell them, no, your, your playground to practice is actually out there. So when you step out this door and you leave this training, it's actually out there in real life and they are scared. And here's why they're scared. There might be places of work where it is unsafe to be you, where teachers or educators or principals or superintendents themselves are scared in, with their school board, for example, to, to be themselves. So they put up all this armor and they pretend to be someone they're not. And so what I do in my trainings is I like to provide that practice, that training ground, that space that is psychologically safe. That's what Amy Edmondson does in her work. And that's basically, basically saying that you have the right to share who you are, what you're doing and what you're thinking, what you're feeling without having re repercussions to what it is you're sharing because you feel safe and that people will accept your feelings and your opinions and won't treat you or retaliate against you because of your beliefs. That's a mouthful. <laughs> and so it, I can't expect that people leave any of my trainings with this idea that they can leave and yay, they're gonna you know, become more courageous. It is a practice and it is a consistent, everyday explicit practice and being able to say things such as, hey, I don't know if this is the right thing to say, but what you said offended me and I just had to share that. We don't have enough of those conversations. So then what ends up happening is we harbor resentment. So the second time somebody says something that is out of malintent, then we harbor that because we didn't say anything and we don't share it. Then the fifth time and then the sixth time it starts building up and it becomes this elephant in the room so then the next time somebody mistreats you, you erupt and it becomes a combustible time between you and that individual because we held on to what we wish we could have said, as opposed to saying it in that moment or coming back later to bring that back into a conversation. Well, I'm curious to know what the other side of that is. And, and what I mean by that is if you've created this psychologically safe environment and you've promoted the idea of being courageous and speaking out whenever you have either something to say or an opinion on something or a question on something and you want to voice that opinion and you feel safe to do so, but not everyone shares the same beliefs. And so if you have someone, and I'm gonna give an example, and this may be an extreme example, but that's the point of this. Let's say you have someone who doesn't believe that people should have their individual pronouns. And they feel like, no, I, you know, I, I believe in this, this certain kind of science um, that there are only two genders and I'm not going to have this happen. And so that's what I believe. And so I'm, I think this is wrong. And so I would think that you might have some educators, since we're talking about educators in this example, you might have some educators that, that speak out in that way. And so I'm, I guess maybe you've encountered that, but that's what I'm thinking of. Mm -hmm. about these environments is that it's good for the people who truly care about just everyone and they want to be inclusive, but I'm thinking about people who aren't. Yeah. 
um, it, it's funny. It's those individuals may be more safe to share that particular piece because it's of the norm. It's of the dominant culture. So for them to say, well, I think that's ridiculous. We're either male or female and da, 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 da. And they're able to share that in the space that's typically been okay. And nobody's ever been held accountable. And I, I shouldn't say held accountable. It's been normal for, for individuals to voice their concerns when it's something to that nature. But when it's the other way, it's all of a sudden we have to put on our brakes, everybody look around the room and wonder if that's okay. It comes back down to every time I meet with educators or me myself, and if there's any sort of squabble or conflict on a campus, people tend to use this term, we're just doing it for kids. I'm in it for kids. I want to do what's best for kids. It just becomes the root of every discussion. And it makes me think, Zach, when individuals are in a place where they can come back and say, using your example, which is, is extreme, but it's very much happening in our schools as we speak, is if we do believe in kids, then we better start learning more about our kids. And our kids are more open to being vulnerable than adults sometimes. And through their vulnerability, we have a chance to learn more about them. I was so excited when the state of Texas changed their evaluation system from PADOS is what it was called, or PDOS, to TTES. And principals received the TPES, and it's the Texas uh, Teacher Evaluation and Support System. And in there, for the first time ever, is a portion, a dimension that basically you must know your students. In other words, long gone are the days that you should just be a content specialist, that you just know math if you're a math teacher. The state is evaluating if teachers know their students. So if we know our students, I think I saw a stat, do not quote me on this, one in four kids eventually will be kids that are non-binary. One in four. So that means kids are not comfortable in the body they've been given. But if we push them aside and ignore that, then we're doing a disservice by the right of kids. And we are not creating safe environments for them to be who they are. So that conversation, I would be thrilled to be a part of, right? Um, instead of looking down at that individual for that time they brought up that conversation that said, well, I just believe in science and we either this or that. Yay, we're talking about it. It's in the room. We just put words to feelings. And now we have somewhere from which to launch as opposed to the silence that can kill and become even more deadly than the words that are being spoken. So like, that's a step. And that's where, again, bring in the five dysfunctions of a team. Now we're getting into productive conflict. So that's like the, the green flags coming up going, okay, we're in territory. Let's start moving towards this work. But Zach, I'll be honest with you. It scares people. So then that door just opened. And what I've seen happen is then that someone shuts it right back. Like, we're not going to talk about that. Right. And, and well, and that's what's happening, I, th I think, right now. I mean, I don't believe it's it's been passed. Maybe I'm wrong. I know in the news, I had heard that they, they wanted a way to limit what teachers can talk about when it comes to race. Right. Critical race theory. Yes. Right. It, I mean, where, where does that kind of play in? Because if you can't teach about that and talk about it openly, I mean, I think that causes an issue. 
Absolutely. I'm wait. I'm waiting and wondering for the time that uh, the work I do is going to be questioned for that exact reason. But that's one of the things that I tend to do quite well is before I go in with the school district, so to speak, this is for intact teams. And what I mean by that, if I get a call, Zach, that says, hey, Lizzie, we want you to come and do some training on how to build relationships. And can you, you know, use some DEI? And people throw out DEI because it's, it's a thing now. It's sort of like self-care. We're just tossing the terms around, oftentimes to check off boxes to say, hey, we did it. Diversity, equity, inclusion, we had a training check. And my job as a consultant is to say, before I engage with you, I need to go through and see your organizational readiness to determine if my coming in is a Band-Aid fix or if it's something that you really, truly, as a district, as a charter, as a nonprofit, believe in and want to do what I had a friend in Virginia tell me, uh, which is called the heart work. This is the heart and soul work that gets pushed to the side oftentimes. So if people really want me to come in and engage in that work, we're going to talk about things that are hard to talk about. If that means you, you don't want systemic racism being talked about, then I can't come in and do this work because it is all built from history, so to speak. And from that, we also go through what exactly is the purpose of my coming in? Where is this stemming from? And if it's just because you did a district equity audit and it showed that there's not a lot of, lot of um, explicit training going on on inclusivity language, and you need me to come in, I'll be happy to do a training on you know, inclusivity language, for example. But do know these are things that will come up and how true is it that you'll be holding space for those individuals whose emotions may be erupting, which might be impacting their teaching, for example, or their leading on a campus that are gonna have more questions later on. Are you prepared to answer those questions later on? I know a lot of the work you do is in schools. I mean, are you doing some work with, with private companies, you know, when it comes to inclusivity? It's so funny, Zach. I, I would love to do work with anyone. However, because my heart is in the education community, I am pulled in every direction right now for this kind of work on courageous leadership, DEI work, as well as anything in regards to the social emotional learning of adults. I am pulled in every direction. Now I do uh, work with colleges and universities in their departments, as well as nonprofits. Uh, I work with American Heart Association for Voices for Healthy Kids. And I also work with uh, Texas Association of Student Councils. And hopefully here gonna be working with the Good Samaritan, Good Samaritan because this work needs to be everywhere, right? Absolutely. And I, have a, I feel like I have a first hand experience in the education realm that I'm just being pulled in every direction. It's a good thing. I, I want to be in this, this area doing the heart work and the soulful work that is hopefully changing and impacting those who attend and, and go through any of, of these particular trainings and workshops and one-on-one -on -one coaching or team coaching. And the reason I ask that is because I just think it's important for, for a lot of private large companies, not so much small businesses. I mean, it's important there as well, I'm sure. But but especially these larger companies um, here in San Antonio and abroad that have board members that don't look like their community or don't look like the majority of their employees. 
And it all comes down, in my opinion, to to, to being inclusive um, and, and stereotypes that you already have built in. And anyways, that's why I thought it was it was important for that kind of work to be done in, in the private sector as well. Absolutely. I, I think representation matters. And uh, we're seeing that. I, f- I feel like San Antonio is, in, is a hub for so much of the diversity, equity, and inclusion belonging work. And is really uh, on the front lines doing some of this hard work that I talk about. When you start to see applications changing, when you start to see application processes changing, for example, I'm on the South by Southwest EDU advisory board, and uh, each year we have to reapply. And for the first time, I saw so many different options in sexual orientation. I was floored and excited at the same time that things are changing in ways that of where we should have been many, many years ago. In addition to that, uh, working with also Teach for America, I run a, an academy, a leadership academy with Teach for America as well. Teach for America, American Heart Association, I'm filling out vendor application paperwork that's asking me if I'm a woman, own business, if I'm LGBTQ, and if I'm Hispanic or Latina. I used to think that we had to hide those things. And now people are saying, no, we want equity in our workshop deliveries and our facilitation. We want diversity. We want equity, inclusion, and belonging. And how nice would that have been earlier in my career to have ever felt like I could be me in those particular arenas. So I I really think we're shifting and opening in our eyes and get into a place where it's okay to unlearn. But here's the other piece to Zach. We haven't said this, but I don't know everything. I, I fumble on my pronouns. I screw up with inclusivity language time and time again. But part of what I do in front of my uh, participants in my facilitation is I say, I am not perfect. None of us are, but I'm here to learn every day alongside you growing in every way I can. And I'm going to screw it up. We all are from time and time again. It's just the nature of the beast. But if I'm not emulating what vulnerability is, then I am nothing. So I have to be vulnerable and step in and share some of the most toughest things. And, and I, and I fumble. And when I fumble, people see I'm human and they recognize, oh, okay, she's just like me. And I I think that is so critical, but it scares people when you go in and you're vulnerable and they're at the part where they're not as vulnerable. So I often might scare some people because I am vulnerable and because I am confident and because I am practicing and making mistakes and other people are wondering why I'm not judging other people as often as maybe they judge. I think that's one of the reasons I do this work is I get to (laughs) practice talking the talk and walking the walk. Um, I have no choice, but at the same time, I love this work. Ever since I was a young high school student, I would even go so far as to say middle school, I've been a a believer in any sort of self-help leadership type books and theories on how to be just better and grow and learn to understand people. So psychosocial is, is one of my favorite areas of study. And I want to know how people think and how we are as creatures of this world and how, we're, how we engage in society. That's why I do this work. 
it's necessary and we can't ignore anymore the opportunities that are afoot for us to engage in critical conversations. We have to do it. You know, what What it made me think about, Lizzie, which is also interesting, and I, I love having these conversations. So also keep in mind, if, if there's something that you don't want to talk about, you can tell me. Oh, <laughs> but, no. but you know what it, no, made, what, I appreciate it, it. what it makes me think about is cancel culture. And so that's thrown into the social media world and, and the media, just in general world. Um, and it's an interesting topic. You know, we've sat here and talked about being vulnerable and being courageous and not being afraid to make a mistake. And sometimes you are going to make a mistake and sometimes you are going to slip up and you might say something that you probably shouldn't have said. And maybe you just didn't know, but because you were being vulnerable and because you were asking the question, or sometimes you weren't asking the question, you just said something, you made a statement, but maybe you made that statement because you didn't know. And there's some cases where people have been, uh, canceled, right? And I'm, I'm putting that in quotations, but being canceled. And so is, is that the right answer? I a hundred percent believe that people should be held accountable. And if you do something wrong, something needs to be done and you need to be held accountable. But as far as the term canceled, I think it's just a buzzword that we've all gotten used to at this mm-hmm. point. I don't know. I think it needs to be more of a, of a discussion, right? And say, yeah. why did you get to that point? Why did you get to that statement? There you go. You know, how did you get there instead of the immediate effect is, ah, I don't want to, I don't want to have anything to do with this, what this person said. And then we ridicule that person as they make an apology and said that they need to learn, you know, whether or not they're being truthful and honest when they say, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, who's to know, but at least that's the first step, right? And apologizing and admitting your mistake and saying that you need to learn more, right? Yeah. So you bring up a really good point. Um, it, it's tricky if we all keep canceling one another, then no one exists, right? So if you, if you take that word cancel, uh, and yes, it's the term we're using, but we're saying, well, I'm not going to go to Chick-fil-A if they don't believe in you know, gay rights or something like that. I like to look at it in terms of what are the conversations that are taking place so that we can enrich each other's lives. Again, not one person knows more than the other, but it's engaging those conversations instead of walking away and generalizing from one moment of time I I think that's the critical piece. We have to share. I think storytelling is huge in today's time more than ever, because if I share a story, then I've now become connected to no telling how many people out there could be thousands of people, could be 10 people. But my story of an incident, for example, could make someone else do things differently. And so we got to get our stories out there. Number one, our lived experiences are everything. Part of my job as a facilitator is I have to be all-inclusive. It's like going to resort, right? I've got to be all-inclusive. But I only have my perspective of my lived experiences. So when I go to a scenic route heading to on the 101 in California, and I pull over to see the view, and I pull over and they have the telescope for me to look, and I drop my quarter, I'm only able to see what I can see. Unfortunately, I can't take my perspective, remove it and add someone else's perspective, but I can through storytelling and and through story listening, understand and hear people's lived experiences, but I still will never know what it's like to be a a black person. I, I will never be able to change my skin color and know what that lived experience is like. I'll never be able to understand what it's like to be trans. I can't do anything but listen. And I 
I think that to sort of answer your question on, on cancel culture, the more we engage in empathetic listening and just truly hearing other people's point of view and their perspective, that's what gives us the stories. That's what gives us the ability to understand lived experiences rather than to take the story and throw it away and not engage in certain ways. It's getting at the root cause and digging deeper as to why. Again, having been a trauma-informed care practitioner, we get at the root of something deeper is underneath any sort of hate, any sort of bigotry, any sort of racism. And somewhere underneath all that, there's most likely some trauma. But if I cancel out someone because they're being ugly and, and, and racist, and I ignore their lived experience, then I'm not showing love. So I think love cancels everything else out. If we can engage more in loving, which has to do with listening up here, the only quote I have in my room is being heard is so close to being loved that they're almost indistinguishable. And I think that is how we sort of handle any places in which people are in a place where they could benefit from unlearning. Let's just say that, right? How are we loving? How are we showing up? And what might that look like? Though it's not our job to be their educator in the process, how will we stand up in a way that is loving and caring? Those are discussions and discussions like these and similar to these are, are important to have in, in the workplace, amongst friends, um, just in general, because you know mm -hmm. those are all hot topics. And I think, unfortunately, on social media, it's hard to do so in 250 characters. So and true. it's hard to do that. So I think that's why it's important for, for the discussions to be had. But I, I appreciate all of the, the work that you do out in the community, especially for educators. Uh, listeners to this show know that both my parents were in education for many years. My father is still in education. My brother wants to be a math teacher. My grandma used to be a nurse in the school. So it's in my heart, <laughs> educators. And so I appreciate the work that you do for educators. Bringing this back to San Antonio, I always like to kind of end the essay talk series with, with some San Antonio talk, right? So what are some places around town that, that you enjoy visiting? It can be restaurants, it can be parks. What are some places you like to visit here in town? Oh my goodness. So our family, I'm a huge outdoor nature hiking. I used to be a runner and my knee needs to be replaced. And I have had to find other avenues of engaging in the outdoors. So I hike and walk and I go to every park in this area and beyond. Enchanted Rock is my favorite place uh, outside of San Antonio, but I live about five minutes from McAllister Park. And we are like, I know all 628 acres of that trail, the red, the blue, the green loop. I've been everywhere in and out of that in every other trail that you can imagine. I love the Phil Hardberger parks. And I, four years ago, was been the one waiting for that land bridge because I had found out in that research that we were would be the, the second of only two uh, land bridges in the world. And so I've been following that up. And now I barely go to Phil Hardberger, Hardberger Park because everybody's there now. So the key is <laughs> to kind of have my peace and solitude. So I would also say that uh, we are avid foodies. So I love everything that has to do with 
uh, the Pearl. And uh, again, that used to not be a place where many people uh, outside of San Antonio knew about, and now it's become a tourist trap. But I love Southerly Brewery. I love everything to do with Cured. I love supper. I love all that little area, the broiler room, that whole area. Like, I love the food. And I would also say that one of our favorite things to do is what my parents taught us growing up. We lived in a small rural South Texas town. So my mom would uh, pack us all up. And there was a lot of us. There was, we were a family of eight. And we'd pack up in the Brady Bunch station wagon. We'd go out for a drive. And we would just go out and go through all the country roads. And we do that same thing here. So we just take our car and we go uh, to the Botanica on the west side. We go to different little areas, all the different parts of the Riverwalk. We've walked, we've engaged in, we love all the missions. I would just say we fall in love with San Antonio every single day. And it's, I've been here 11 years. I used to be a tourist myself, but now that I'm here for 11 years, there's just a long list of places we go to. We're movie goers too. We haven't been to a movie since pandemic. Uh, we like to go to the uh, Santico's uh, Bijou Art Cinema. That that place I pretty much have stock in. Uh, so any sort of independent film is being shown at uh, Bijou. And I love that whole wonderland of America's area as well. Well, Lizzie, I appreciate your time again. I appreciate your conversation and your insight. Definitely going to have to have you back on the show another time. And, yeah. and, and I'm sure there's a lot of other different discussions that we can have on here. That- oh, totally. I really appreciate you giving me this chance, Zach. And I enjoyed uh, your questions and we'll be in touch because I want to chat with your mom and get a chance to have coffee and talk more about uh, this work. That's going to wrap up my interview with Lizzie Perez. We're going to take a quick break. When I come back, I'll be giving my local recommendation of the week as well as my question to leave the listeners with. Stay tuned. This is what we're made of. The businesses that line our streets and the customers that make them flourish. As a business owner, this is your community, your members, your regulars, your neighbors. Your business is unique. So are your customers. No matter who you need to reach, Spectrum Reach is here to help you connect with the right message on every screen. Visit SpectrumReach.com to connect with a local advertising expert. That's SpectrumReach.com. Welcome back into SA Talk. My third and last segment, I'll be giving you my local recommendation as well as my question of the week to leave the listeners with. So this week, I'd like to feature Conuevos Tacos on East Houston Street. I've been visiting Conuevos for a while, ever since I came across them on Insta and decided to make a little trip over there. It's on the east side. It's a small but really cool looking place that has incorporated the outdoor seating since the pandemic began, like a lot of local restaurants. And as you can imagine, they're known for their breakfast tacos, but they do have some other really, really good items on the menu. They're located at 1629, that's 1629 East Houston Street here in San Antonio, Texas, zip code 78202. Like I said, they're on the east side. They're not far from downtown. It's a little bluish teal, I guess you would say, building with big letters on the top that say Conuevos Tacos on the front, so you can't miss it. If you're traveling east on Houston Street from downtown, they'll be on your left-hand side right before you get to Dignity Meats. And the place was opened up in 2019, late 2019, by chef and owner Hugo Garcia. What I like about his story is that he was inspired by his abuela, or his grandmother, whose name was Licha. He craved her flour tortillas, and it was important for him to incorporate those family recipes in his cooking there at Conuevos. They have some really cool names for the tacos that they do have on the menu, like Licha, the Carmen, and the Vicky, just to name a few. 
They also have your traditional breakfast tacos, so if you want to be basic, you can. I usually get the Carmen, which is a potato egg cheese taco with avocado and cilantro. It comes with some salsa ranchera on the side, but of course I douse the taco with it. I usually don't leave with just one taco, I'll be honest. I typically also get the Irma, which is an egg, salsa verde, Oaxaca cheese, avocado, and cilantro taco. Now both are really amazing. Like I said, that's what I usually get, those two tacos. But this last time, I tried one of the chilaquiles bowls that they have, and it was excellent. So I really recommend trying this place out. Again, it's Conuevos Tacos. Conuevos, they're open from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. Tuesday through Saturday. Like I said, they are located at 1629 East Houston Street on the city's east side. You can follow them on Instagram and Facebook at Conuevos Tacos. That is C-O-N-H-U-E-V-O-S Tacos. And their website is ConuevosTacos.com. Now, moving on to the question of the week, I would like to ask the listeners, based on my discussion this week with Lizzie Perez, what is your view on cancel culture? And I I know we didn't touch a lot on the topic, but, you know, a topic like this, it's not a one-size-fits-all issue. And in my opinion, it means different things for different people. And nonetheless, it's a hot topic in the media, especially on social media, so I'm curious to see what you guys think. So if you want to answer on Facebook or Instagram, look for the new Essay Talk episode post and leave your answer there. If you want to answer on Twitter, which is my preferred platform, reply and use hashtag Essay Talk Answers. Really interested in hearing your opinions on this matter. That said, that's going to wrap up this week's episode of Essay Talk. Before I let you go, I wanted to give a huge thank you to all of the loyal listeners. You all keep the podcast going for sure, so thank you for that. I also want to thank any new listeners checking out the show for the first time. If you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to check out my other series, Searching for San Antonio. Also, if you want to help the podcast out, please give a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Want to keep up with the podcast? Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at SAPod Network. If you absolutely love, love, love the podcast and the content, You can support this podcast by visiting the link in bio and clicking support. Allows you to set up monthly donations like I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast. I would greatly appreciate if you did. Lastly, if you and any business owners you know are looking to advertise with the podcast, please reach out to me at Zachary, Z-A-C-H-A-R-Y, at sapodnetwork.com. With two shows now, there are even more slots for advertising and sponsorship opportunities. So thank you all again. Have a wonderful weekend. See you again next week and Viva San Antonio.